Hello, this is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And in just a moment, we will have Lynn Mento with us. She is of Conservation Nation. In just a moment, she's going to tell us all about what Conservation Nation is and what she does there. I'd like to also remind you that you can find us on social media and you can also email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. I'm Carol Murphy, your host, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. We will be right back with Lynn Mento. As I went walking and ripping the highway, I saw the This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today, we are speaking with Lynn Mento. She's with Conservation Nation. Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm good, Carol. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And you're speaking with us from Washington, D.C., is that right? Yes. What is Conservation Nation? Why are you in Washington, D.C.? <laughs> yeah. Conservation Nation is a, a, a new nonprofit dedicated to saving wildlife and the planet by bringing a larger, stronger, more diverse, and more representative core of conservationists to the fight. Uh, And we are in Washington, D.C. because we are the genesists of a 63-year-old nonprofit in D.C. called Friends of the National Zoo, or FONS. We uh, worked with the Smithsonian and the National Zoo for over six decades, but were not able to make it through the pandemic together, unfortunately. So FONS uh, left the zoo and evolved into Conservation Nation, which was an initiative that we had set up under FONS to provide conservation grants directly to these amazing wildlife conservationists working in the field to save threatened and endangered animals. And so we morphed through the pandemic and officially launched at the end of September. And that's who we are. And that's why we're here in D.C. So like so many organizations and businesses and just individual folks on a day-to-day basis heavily impacted by COVID. What happened and why could you not kind of continue on as bonds? So when uh, the pandemic hit, the Smithsonian and the zoo made a decision to shut down, obviously out of safety. And, uh, and so when the zoo was shut down, the Friends of the National Zoo, which is the organization that I ran for about six years, uh, we had no revenue coming in. Obviously, there was nobody who was going to the zoo to buy burgers or uh, pick up a stuffed panda toy or join membership or come to one of our wonderful events. And so there was no revenue coming in. There was no revenue coming in for the zoo and there was none coming in for Friends of the National Zoo. And that was a very difficult period. We were looking down the barrel of about a two and a half million dollar loss over the course of that year, that first year of the pandemic. The Smithsonian opened up partially when they felt it was safe, but there were still restrictions, as you can imagine, out of uh, safety and need for, uh, you know, protecting the community. And so there's simply, as with so many organizations and so many businesses, there just wasn't the revenue coming in through the pandemic that supported the organization. And so we had to pivot. We are thrilled with the pivot. So this path that we've taken, Conservation Nation, 
is really so powerful. There, you know, it's really funny, Carol, the amount of privilege it takes to become a conservationist. When you look at the challenge that the world is facing, and I'm sure you've heard all about this, and, you know, we're in the sixth largest extinction, and we're at risk of losing millions of species as we speak. When you look at the enormity of that challenge, which, of course, is being exacerbated by climate change, but was happening even before and apart from climate change, you look at how huge that challenge is, and you look at the impact it will have on the planet, every other animal, people, our children and children to come, it just becomes so clear that we, as a species, as humans, have to give this fight to save biodiversity in the planet, everything we've got, or we're not going to make it. And when you look at it in that context, and then you look at what it takes for someone to become a conservationist to join the fight, it really becomes so clear that something needs to change. There are these systemic barriers in place that have historically made the field of conservation one that is limited. And for those with privilege and money and access and connections, and because of all of that, the field is largely white with practitioners often coming from backgrounds of privilege. As our country is becoming wonderfully more diverse, it's crystal clear that as this challenge is growing and the percentage of people who can afford to become conservationists is shrinking and shrinking, we are not giving this fight all we've got. And that's not how we're going to win. That's not how we're going to save this planet. And so it, we were very excited. I have, a, I have a small team now. We went from about 270 people down to about seven people. But our team is so passionate about the fact that we have to start chipping away at these barriers that keep people from becoming conservationists, open it up so that every smart voice and every smart solution is at the table, not just those who can afford it with privilege and access and connections. So that's something that we feel so strongly about. And as I said, we launched in September, so we're quite new still, but we have a track record from doing it under Friends of the National Zoo. And so we've supplied grants, about half a million dollars so far in grants to conservationists who have been hit hardest by these barriers. And that is typically women and girls, people of color, indigenous people, those from disadvantaged communities. So giving grants to conservationists who have made it from those communities helping support their species-saving work, and then asking them to be role models with us for the next generation. You know that great expression, if you can't see it, you can't be it? And these kids are not seeing conservationists who look like them. It doesn't even enter their mind to become a conservationist. And if you're from an underserved community, you're not getting these meaningful experiences in nature. You're not being educated about these possibilities in your schools. You don't have the family and friend connections that allow you to break into one of the NGOs. And so um, we want these kids to see themselves in conservation, to realize that they deserve to be part of this fight. And there are people who look like them and came from communities like them and walked a path like them who have made it. So we're doing this granting work and we're doing this education and inspiration work. And we're quite excited about it. Please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, Lynn, and how did you get involved with FONS and what inspired you to take on this hugely 
challenging task at hand? Mm-hmm. So I came to Fonz from my career within advertising and marketing, so time in New York and other markets. I was running a small marketing agency here in D.C., and AARP was one of our clients. And I just sort of fell in love with the world of nonprofit and the ability to make a difference. And so went over to AARP, ran membership and member experience in a couple other areas in AARP, And really loved it. But after the end of about seven or eight years, I said, you know, I I need to run a nonprofit. The the world needs more people stepping up to, just as you said, Carol, take on the challenges, take on the risks, fight the fights that need to be fought. And there was an opportunity to run Friends of the National Zoo. And I got that job and was the first female leader of Friends of the National Zoo in its 60-year history. And so took over Fonz about, as I said, about six years ago, I guess, six or seven years ago, and loved it. And and the minute I plunged into that world, it's so easy to see that there are a small group of these conservationists who, you know, sometimes we call them the Indiana Jones of wildlife. They are out there fighting in the field day and night, every day to help save threatened animals, to help preserve wildlife and diversity and keep the planet habitable for us, our children, and our children to come. And you fall in love with these people and their passion and their mission and their courage. And it's all you want to do is to support them. You see the bigness of it. You see the importance of it. And so through that opportunity at Fonz, I was able to meet these folks, spend time with them, support them directly, and some success stories and some not. I remember one grant we gave to, uh, Dr. Peter Limegruber for work to tag and preserve Asian elephants. And I, I want to say he tagged about eight of them and then came over and showed us photos. There were at least three that had been uh, poached and slaughtered. And you see these photos that they took of, you know, just the body of the Asian elephant with the legs cut off for tables and the tusks cut off and the trunk cut off and horror, just the horror of this. And so that you just become utterly passionate about it. I would defy anybody not to become utterly passionate and want to do everything they can to help that fight. And I had the opportunity to spend some time in Tanzania, spend some time with animals down there in safari. And you just, the majesty of it, you know, you have to do everything you can to protect these gorgeous creatures that we are killing and harming through poaching, through human encroachment, through climate change. And so it just gets into your blood and it did get into mine, but also my team, my wonderful team, we all feel exactly the same. And so it was easy when, when we knew we weren't going to make it through the pandemic with the zoo and the Smithsonian, it was easy to see sort of the, the North Star of the direction where we needed to go, which is to give everything we've got to fighting to save wildlife and the planet by opening up the opportunities for everyone to become conservationists, regardless of how wealthy their parents are, what neighborhood they grew up in, what color their skin is, what sex or race they are. You know, everybody, we need every smart voice in this fight. So it was a North Star. It really was. I think we all saw it very clearly. Yes. And these are very complex, complicated, layered issues to solve. And you touched upon that the fact that some of the species were pushed to the edge even before the pandemic mm-hmm. and the huge climate issues that we're now facing. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, 
Did you grow up in D.C.? And did you have exposure to wildlife as a child growing up? I was born in Connecticut, but grew up mostly in New Jersey. And I was privileged to have the opportunity to have meaningful experiences in nature. I was privileged to go to a school that helped me understand this and to have the ability to go to college. You know, I I had that privilege and it was meaningful. And so I had the chance to spend some time in nature, like all kids. And when we talked to conservationists and asked them why they became a conservationist, the number one reason is because they had meaningful experiences in nature as a child. And Every child deserves that opportunity. Every child deserves the right to feel comfortable being outside, to have access to green space, to be able to spend time looking at animals. And we're not, none of us grew up, uh, at least I don't think most of us grew up watching elephants and giraffes and gazelles, but we can all grow up looking at birds and worms, you know, and bugs. Butterflies. And it can (laughs) It's meaning. It is truly meaningful. You get a different sense of nature and the world and your part in this world. And so I just had those those childhood experiences and, uh, you know, we're just committed to making sure everyone can. So we're going to take our midway point break here. And in just a moment, we'll talk a little bit more about your work there. This is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. We're speaking with Len Mento of Conservation Nation. We shall be right back. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today, we're speaking with Lynn Mento of Conservation Nation. And Lynn, I'm just thrilled that you are, you're sharing with us some of the experiences you had with elephants. And we had interviewed Stuart Pym before and Rudy Van Arndt, and kind of talking about the whole issue of poaching with elephants. You know, this is one of those issues that are so tangled to unravel. And, you know, Rudy's take on things was that this is controlled by mobs, gangs, mobsters, basically, people who are also running, you know, probably illegal drugs and guns. Mm -hmm. And I really love the fact that you're kind of focusing on children, it sounds like. Is that right? And can you explain a little bit more about that? Yes. So, It's the next generation that will save us. We have not done a great job, our generation. It is the next one that will be the one who will figure out how to save this planet. And we need all of these children, every child, regardless of their level of privilege or access, every child, we are going to need their perspective, their intelligence, their ideas, their creativity if we're going to save this planet. And therefore... Every child should feel that if they have a passion to save wildlife on the planet, they have every right to have that ignited and to explore it and to have opportunities to meet people, see what it's like. And these kids do not have that opportunity today. Only a tiny, tiny fraction of children have that opportunity today. And so we are determined to light a spark, expose every child that we can to the field of conservation and ask them to become wildlife champions 
all the way up to becoming a conservation biologist. But wherever they choose to go in life, wherever their passion is, they can bring a wildlife conservation mindset to it. You could become a beautician and be sure that you're not using products with palm oil because palm oil is eradicating the forest where the orangutans are living. So any place you stop along the way in your career, you can be a wildlife champion. But of course, we'd love many more of them to go directly into the field of the fight for conservation through conservation biology. And so we are focusing for a pilot program in the D.C. area, our home turf, where we've been for six decades now, focusing here in D.C. and talking to high school students through an education and inspiration program to open up their eyes to the field of conservation, talk about what it means to be a wildlife champion in whatever way they choose to do it, introduce them to these role model conservationists that have already made it, that we are supporting through our grants so that they can see these women, these people of color, these indigenous Americans. They can see people who look like them, walked a path like them, have come from communities like them, and in so doing, feel comfortable and welcome that this is an open field. And so we're focusing on that with these high school students. And we have a dream of we'll get through this pilot, we'll measure our results. And then our dream is to expand it geographically to other markets in underserved communities and then um, expand the age range. Well, you know, we'd love to go down to middle school. We'd love to go up to post high school students, you know, 18 to 24. So uh, we're going to work our way through the pilot, gain our learning and then expand from there. But the children are the future and we cannot afford to limit our future fighters. And I know that this pivot has taken place recently and a lot of pilot operations and uh, programs going on. But in the past, can you maybe share and even now some success stories, uh, impacts that either FONS or Conservation Nation has had? Yeah. So, you know, we've certainly given out grants and those grants have gone directly to support work to save wild animals. And, you know, some of the ones we're most proud of are work we did to help protect pangolins, work we did to directly fund pangolins? nest pangolins. Are you familiar with pangolins? No. <laughs> oh, they're, oh! you have to Google them, Carol. They're an adorable, adorable species. So the, this work we did in Pangolin happened to be in Vietnam, uh, but they are in other countries as well. They are a particularly poached, by some accounts, the most poached species in the world. And they are prized mistakenly for their scales and their meat. There's a belief that their scales have medicinal purposes in Eastern medicine, which is not true. It's, their scales are just keratin, just like our fingernails. And so there's a lot of pangolin poaching going on. And so one of the things we did were we funded veterinarians to help rescue pangolins that have been saved from being poached because they're stuck in these boxes, they're dehydrated, they're sick. So some direct work like that. We funded a, a seminar series in Kenya on rhino welfare. So there are, as you know, rhinoceroses are certainly a threatened species and some subspecies are, there's only a handful of them around. And so we sponsored getting the best minds in rhino welfare and medical care together in Kenya. We funded nest boxes for African penguins. So the African penguins, they, they live on the coast of Africa 
and uh, they build their nests out of sand. But as people have encroached and as erosion has happened, there's less and less ability for them to build their nests. And if they can't build their nests, they can't lay eggs. And if they can't lay eggs, and of course, the number of African penguins continues to decline. And so we were able to fund for $50 uh, the purchase of an African nest box that was placed on the beach and these penguins nested in. So we had a great campaign. We helped about 1,500 African penguins. But, you know, I, I am probably most proud right now of some direct work we just did. So when when we were thinking about Conservation Nation's path forward over this summer, we knew we wanted to do it. And it was the process of, okay, exactly how do we do it? Where do we focus? We had the chance to talk to this wonderful young conservationist, Taylor Bland, who's out at Yellowstone. And she's dedicated her life to saving the wolves of Yellowstone. So young black woman had a job at somewhere in Yellowstone to pay the bills, but also had a full-time non-paying volunteer job at the premier Yellowstone Wolf Organization, which was her real passion. But it was a volunteer job. That is one of these barriers I was talking about of privilege. You have to be able to afford to work for free. And of course, I certainly wouldn't have been able to. Very few people are able to afford to work for free. So Taylor had a full-time job to pay the bills and effectively a full-time volunteer job. So she was working seven days a week, sun up to sundown, and was desperately trying to get this the job she was volunteering for, get it as a paid job, but hadn't been able to make that happen yet. Last time I talked to her, she was disheartened because her local fast food restaurant down the street posted a sign that they were going to be paying $4 more per hour than this job she wanted to get at the organization she was volunteering for, which is another point of privilege. Even if you make it in, you have to be able to afford to work for very little money relatively compared to other careers. And, you know, her fiance, Jack, considered himself one of the lucky ones because he made it into a paying job in conservation, primarily because his mom, a single mom, a hairdresser, was able to work extra hours at night to give Jack the money he needed to pay for a free internship. And what that allowed Jack to do was then to break in and get a paying job. So, you know, Taylor and Jack are classic examples of the privilege and access and connections that you need in order to become a conservationist to help save the world for all of us. It's just crazy. And so probably what I'm most proud of is over the last few weeks, we were able to fund that paying job for Taylor. So Taylor is the first Conservation Nation fellow working with the Yellowstone Wolf Project, which is a wonderful organization. We were able to fund Taylor through the generosity of several amazing folks, Rick McIntyre, who is probably the world's leading wolf expert, several other passionate donors, Conservation Nation funds, and we were able to fund that paying job for Taylor. So she doesn't have to work two jobs and she can actually make money helping to save the world for us. So uh, that's that's recent and uh, the team and I are very proud of that one. Yes, and there's been so many positive outcomes and unexpected outcomes due to the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone. That's mm-hmm. a whole program in and of itself. It just cascades mm-hmm. down throughout all yeah. of the species in the yeah, park. That's right. That's and right. I'm just wondering, you talked a little bit about future plans, but probably have maybe about four minutes left. What else do you have up your sleeve? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We well, you know, the team and I are determined to do our part to help save the planet. And so, what we need to do is figure out how to go very big 
on our mission. So our dream is that we are bringing a thousand new conservationists from diverse backgrounds into the field. Our dream is that the field of conservation becomes as representative as the United States population, which it should be. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to fund significantly more grants to these conservationists who are doing the work today and can act as role models with us. We're going to have to expand our education and inspiration program from beyond the Washington, D.C. pilot nationally. So we see ourselves as, you know, a a future large player in the conservation, inclusion, representation, equity space. The wonderful thing is that every large environmental NGO wants exactly the same thing. And they are, of course, much bigger and more powerful than us. So we see ourselves as a helpful convener and support for them in their work as well. So we also see ourselves doing more convening, pulling together the thought leaders and uh, seeing if we can create solutions together to these challenges that, as you said at the start, are incredibly challenging and thorny. And the only way we're going to get through them is if we get through them together. So we see a future in convening as well. So expanding our grant program, growing the education program nationally, and really rising up as a helpful convener in the environmental NGO space. And any advice for others working in this space? You have a great perspective and just curious, what do you see that we can do that maybe we're not doing as yet? I think really it's that this belief that we need every smart voice and every smart solution at the table if we're going to win. It is really, Carol, the absolutely only way we're going to make it through this. And so thank God for these conservationists, as you said, that are out there and working and fighting today. And I give them all my respect. And my only ask would be that we work together to pay it forward. And everyone has a responsibility in opening up the field of conservation. And, and, you know, really every conservationist I've talked to is dedicated to this as well. They want to pay it forward. They want to lift up those behind them. They see more than anyone from their point on the mountain. They see the perspective so clearly that this is critical. So uh, just doing more of that every day, fighting for inclusion, fighting for representation, fighting for equity within the field of conservation. Yes, and I I love the whole idea in the mission that you have of kind of activating the youth. It's very important. Yeah. How might listeners reach out, Lynn, and find you? Yeah, we're a small organization. I would love to hear from them. They can contact me directly via my email, which is lynn, L-Y-N-N, at conservationnation.org. Fantastic. When we were speaking earlier, you were saying that uh, you were in the midst of a a nice snowstorm there. So (laughs) (laughs) we are. It's our first one of the season. I'm looking out my window now. It's actually very pretty. Yeah. Well, maybe there'll be enough to make a a snow person. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, maybe, maybe. (laughs) And thank you so much for being our guest, Lynn. I appreciate that. Oh, thank you, Carol. It was my pleasure. Mm-hmm. And this is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Daniel Hogan is in the studio. And we'll be back to bring you more amazing guests next week. We'll see you then. Peace.
Passing, but on the other side. 